All right. Hey, good morning and welcome to The Story, Houston's online service. My name is Eric Huffman. I'm the lead pastor here at The Story. And whoever you are, wherever you are, I'm so glad you're here. The Story Houston is a church that is basically devoted to inspiring people to follow Jesus. And so no matter what you believe or how many doubts you might have about religion, I hope you'll find a, a place here where you can ask honest questions and seek uh, real answers. So I'm really, really glad that you are here today. I will say, if this is your first time joining us online, uh, today's service is going to look and feel a little bit different. Ever since mid-March, when we went into COVID-19 online-only worship, our staff and volunteer crews have been working nonstop to make every Sunday service go off without a hitch. And so I wanted to make sure and give them a little time to breathe this weekend with it being a holiday. I thought it's a great time to give them all the weekend off. And so, hey, it's just me today, and I hope that I can be enough for you. We are going to talk and have a good time, but if you're new here, yeah, most Sundays look and feel a little bit different. Now, as you know, yesterday was the 4th of July, and the United States of America celebrated her 244th birthday, the same way that many of us celebrate our birthdays as we get a little bit older with a string of some bad decisions, a little irresponsible behavior, and maybe a healthy dose of <laughs> regrets. <laughs> it got me thinking about the regrets that we all feel as we look back on the lives that we've lived. And, and in particular, it got me thinking about our shared life together as Americans. You know, America has dealt with a healthy dose of regrets about our past, especially recently as escalating racial tensions have uh, resurfaced some of our country's deepest shame. It's really raised the question for many of us, how should we as Americans, in particular, how should we as American Christians feel about America? How should we feel when we see this flag? How should we feel when we pledge allegiance to, to the United States? How should we feel when we sing the national anthem? What should we be feeling then? You know, um, the latest surveys, they all indicate there is a deep and growing divide between us as Americans when it comes to patriotism. Republicans and Democrats, for example, 92% of Republicans say that they are very proud to be Americans, while only 29% of Democrats claim to be very patriotic at all. And the same kind of divide can be seen between older Americans and younger Americans. Now, some of you right now are looking at your pastor preaching in front of an American flag for the first time, and you're thinking, at last, finally, my pastor preaching in front of our flag. I couldn't be prouder. And there's others of you that are seeing this right now and thinking, well, it was a good run for me at the story. <laughs> I guess it's time to find a new church. What is Eric thinking? I'll explain today, I promise. I want you to know that um, a little bit about where I come from. My upbringing was deeply patriotic. Every Sunday morning, um, I remember celebrating America, not just Jesus. July the 4th in my town was basically a Christian holiday. All the churches got together and, and we had like a festival for America as Christians. Um, I remember the United States flag standing tall in our sanctuary, just behind the pulpit where the preacher spoke. Every Sunday, it stood there as a powerful symbol. I remember we used to pray for the president every Sunday. Every Sunday of my childhood, we prayed for the president 
Well, it never happens in most churches across America today, but every Sunday we did. At least we did until 92 when Bill Clinton got elected. I don't remember those prayers continuing, but we picked right back up where we left off in 2000 when Bush took office. But that's how politics works sometimes. People in my hometown take the flag and this country so seriously that I remember the entire town's feelings about that show, Roseanne, changing overnight. People never forgave Roseanne Barr for how she desecrated America by what she did just before a baseball game between the San Diego Padres and the Cincinnati Reds. Wow. <laughs> well, at least it was a Padres-Reds game, so only a few dozen people were subjected <laughs> to that. One time in the early 90s, I remember it was the beginning of the first Gulf War. It was a Sunday morning, and my father and I, we stood up and sang a duet together during a Sunday morning service. We sang Lee Greenwood's classic hit, God Bless the USA. You know the one? Proud to be an American. My, my, my dad and I sang that as our troops marched into war. By the time the song was over, the entire congregation was on their feet. Half of them were in tears. I remember it very well. It's the only standing ovation I've ever gotten in my whole life. But I remember growing up and thinking beyond a shadow of a doubt, America is the greatest nation on the face of the earth. No questions asked. That's how I grew up. Everything changed, though. Later in life, I went to college, and then in seminary after, I got the same message in college and in seminary, and I learned there that the American flag, far from being a symbol of freedom, it should, should never be on display in a sanctuary because it's not this beacon of hope and democracy as I learned. The United States, as I found out, was founded by racist white men for racist white men, and it had grown to become the world's leading exporter of tyranny and hatred the world over. Unbeknownst to me, I'd spent most of my life pledging allegiance to an evil empire that was built on the backs of slaves, and unless and until I disavowed myself of that allegiance, along with my whiteness and most of my masculinity, I was part of the problem. I was a part of America's systemic oppression of marginalized people groups. And so in my 20s, I stopped pledging allegiance to the flag. I stopped singing the national anthem. I stopped putting my hand over my heart. I was no longer proud to call this nation home. In fact, I was ashamed to be an American. Lee Greenwood never wrote a song for me in my 20s, so I just started organizing marches. I organized protests for women's rights and gay rights and immigrant rights. That's how I spent much of my 20s in Kansas City. I believed that America itself was the true enemy standing in the way of the freedoms and rights that these people enjoyed or deserved. And so that's what I did. Now, I, it's not quite where I'm at anymore. I, I still have some of those those leanings, some of those beliefs about people's rights and equal rights, but I've evolved in some other 
ways, but still, I know that that kind of vitriolic angst about America describes how many of you feel about your country today. And I know that many of you watching right now have some very good reasons to feel the way that you feel about the nation you call home. I know some of you have very good reasons to feel less than warm and fuzzy when you think about the red, white, and blue. Listen, I know we're just three or four generations removed from slavery in America. We're one generation removed from segregation being legal in America. And so it's, it's no secret why our feelings about this country can be all over the place. You know, that's why Make America Great Again is so controversial. You know that, right? That's why that slogan evokes so many feelings on both sides of the political aisle. It assumes that there was, in fact, a time in American history when America was great, greater than it is now, but, but recent events, recent events have caused all Americans to wonder about our greatness, both past and present. When Trump's critics hear make America great again, they're left to wonder which era of our history he and his supporters are nostalgic for. Was it the 1920s or before when women still couldn't vote in America? Or was it around 1950 when black people in many parts of this country had to use separate restrooms or separate water fountains or send their kids to separate schools? Or was it in the 80s when gay Americans still lived in fear and on the margins of society, to which era in American history does Make America Great Again refer? Last week, to dig a little bit deeper, I asked my Facebook friends and followers to share their ideas and opinions about what makes America great. And I got all kinds of answers, and I'm so grateful to my friends for sharing. My friends who are politically agnostic shared some predictably agnostic answers about what makes America great. They said things like the national park system and baseball and frozen yogurt are what make America great. My Texan friends lifted up things that are all decidedly Texan, like bluebell ice cream and barbecue ribs and Bucky's gas stations. <laughs> to absolutely no one's surprise, Texans think the greatest thing about America is... Texas. <laughs> the 30% or so of my friends who lean politically conservative had a lot to say about what makes America great is our freedom. It's our, it's our opportunities as Americans. And then on the other hand, the 30% of my friends who are politically liberal didn't say much at all about what makes America great. Instead, every single one of them sent me the same clip from the same show. I did not know this was such a thing on the left, but there's this show called uh, Newsroom, the Newsroom on HBO, and there's this opening clip to an episode that every person left of center uh, absolutely swears by. And I can't show you the clip. There's too much language in it to show in a Sunday service. But basically, the main character of this show goes through this long list, a diatribe of reasons why the United States is a pretty terrible place to live. Not only is it not great, it's barely livable, according to this character. And he closes his speech by saying, we used to be the greatest country in the world, but not anymore. And I'm going to be real honest, so many of my left-of-center friends, political left-of-center friends, sent me this clip that clearly says America used to be great and no longer is, as if to say that we need to 
make America great again. It was, it was one of those twilight zone moments where the left and right just overlapped and agreed with each other that we must make America great again. Even though they probably disagree on how that should happen, it was one of those interesting eye-openers uh, last week. Really caused me to wonder if maybe, just maybe, the one thing we could all agree on is that at every era, at every point in our nation's history, there has been both greatness and shame intertwined. There has been simultaneous virtue and vice, good and evil at every turn in American history. And today is no different. There are so many things to love about America today. So many things to be grateful for about living in this country. But there's also plenty of stuff that I could live without. There's plenty of stuff I despise. You might even say I hate it. Like I hate how deeply divided we are as a nation. I hate how hopelessly divided we are and the the vitriolic rhetoric across the aisle. I despise it. It's hopeless. And I hate it. I I hate how the two-party system we have forces us to choose between the lesser of two evils every four years the same way. I hate that we're $26 trillion in debt and nobody really even talks about it anymore. I hate the way some parts of our culture works, like how Lady Antebellum had to change their name to Lady A and the Dixie Chicks are now just the Chicks because they were afraid of getting canceled. When in fact, both those new names are way creepier than the old ones were, Lady A and the Chicks. I hate cancel culture and I could definitely live without it. I hate American cable news. I hate kale. And I mean the vegetable, not the story staff member. I like him just fine. I hate the Yankees and the Dodgers and the IRS and the Yankees. You know, even though there's plenty of stuff to despise and resent about life today in America, there's also much to love about this great land like the selfless nurses and first responders who took care and are continuing to take care of COVID-19 patients and peaceful protesters standing up for what they believe in. I saw images of peaceful protesters standing in front of businesses, protecting them from more violent rioters and looters. And I loved to see it. We've got mountains, we've got beaches and forests grasslands and waterfalls to die for. We've got some of the greatest scenery the world's ever known. And uh, we should be grateful for such things. We've got deserts. We've got Dolly Parton. (laughs) We've got Beyonce and Bruno Mars and Bruce Springsteen. Y'all, we've got wide open spaces and interstate highways that we're free to traverse from sea to shining sea. And despite everything you've heard to the contrary in the mass media, we've still got some really good cops and the communities that love them. Guess who mine is? Moana. 
amazing the bond that he has with the children, especially around here. It's very important to see the connection he has, especially with these group of kids that I see every day. They need someone who they can feel is a superhero, and we locally call him the South Hill Batman. My job is, is here to protect and serve. For me to be a catalyst to young people, regardless of, of race, color, creed, religion, uh, I feel like I can be a positive change. So I grew up believing that the USA is the greatest country in the world and should never, ever be criticized. And I spent my 20s and part of my 30s believing that this country is a hotbed of bigotry and should never, ever be celebrated. The truth is, I can see it so clearly now that there was truth on both sides, as well as the lies. There were plenty of lies that both those extreme positions taught to me. For example, the lie that I was told in my youth was that it's un-American to criticize America. The truth is, there's nothing more American than using your First Amendment right, your right to free speech, to criticize this country. Protests aren't an insult to the Founding Fathers. They are the fulfillment of the Founding Fathers' original vision. On the other hand, the lie that I was told in my 20s was that there was nothing really great at all about America, nothing to celebrate, nothing to be proud of, nothing special. And to celebrate this country is akin to bigotry. And I have two responses now to this lie that I believed. The first I'll borrow from my friend, Michelle Tsao Wu, who answered my Facebook question last week about America's greatness this way. She said, I can be in an Asian grocery store that's blasting a Luis Miguel song, and I know the words. It's knowing Chinese food seasoned with jalapenos tastes better, and all the Chinese restaurants in San Francisco don't understand this fact. It's being Asian with a Texas accent, and I can speak Spanish and zero Chinese, and laughing because people can't figure out where I'm from. That is what makes America amazing. Amen, Michelle. Thank you. Now, my second response to the idea that there's really nothing worth celebrating when it comes to America really has to do with God. I'm well aware that this nation is not a Christian nation, and I'm proud of the fact that you can believe in the Christian God or another God or a bunch of gods or no God and expect to receive the same rights and to have the same worth in the eyes of your government in America. I mean, I, I have always believed that to be true. That's why I used to organize those protests, those marches in my 20s and early 30s. But it never occurred to me in those days to ask deeper questions about the rights that I was fighting for, like where they come from, who guarantees them, why should we expect them? Why should anyone deserve basic human rights? Why shouldn't some people have more rights and more dignity than others if they earn it, if they work harder, if they toe the line better? Why not? America has an answer for that question. And what makes America truly exceptional among the nations is the documented assumption that every human being has equal and intrinsic worth, not because their government says so. The governments, they come and they go. 
It's not because of governments, and it's not because of their skin color, or it's not based on what language they speak or what creed they profess, but simply because we were all created by the same God. America may not be a Christian nation, but its most fundamental underpinnings were founded on the uniquely Christian notion that all people are created equal in the eyes of God. It says so in the Declaration of Independence. It says, all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, hardcore critics might point to the author of those eloquent words as evidence of American hypocrisy. Thomas Jefferson was a complicated man, to say the least. He was a walking contradiction. He wrote that all men are created equal and have the God-given right to liberty while he owned slaves. Who does that? What kind of man says one thing and does the opposite? Fact is, Thomas Jefferson and most of the other founding fathers, they were hypocrites. There's no denying that. They fought for a free nation, and when they got it, they built it on the backs of slaves. People today, we seem to think that you have to choose to believe that they were either great and should be revered or they were evil and should be reviled. And it's one or the other, it's black or white. The truth is, the fact is, the founding fathers were both great and evil. They were visionary and vile. They were courageous cowards. And for Christians, this is where America's story gets interesting. Because anyone who's ever read the New Testament knows that it says we're all sinners. Christians believe we're all sinners. Sin is the great equalizer. Every one of us is a sinner. Romans 3.23 says we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. We're all hypocrites. We're all racists. We're all criminals. We're all cowards. What kind of man says one thing and does the opposite? Me and you and every single one of us. But God's not done with us yet. Romans 5, 8 says, God shows his love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. So we believe that Jesus died for us all, Christians and non-Christians, slaves and slaveholders, liberals and conservatives, Donald Trump, Bill Clinton, and Roseanne Barr, people of every color and creed, gay and straight, male and female, the Dodgers and the Yank, the Yank, uh, can't even say it, the Yankees, okay? He even died for the Yankees. And so what this means, you guys, is that if everyone was made by the same God in the image of God, and if everyone is worthy of equal rights and dignity, and if Jesus died for everyone because every one of us is a sinner, then we're all in this together. We're all in the same boat. This message today really isn't a message about the U.S. This is a message about us. 
the story of this nation runs parallel to the stories that each and every one of us could tell. Like America, we aspired to greatness. We held the highest of ideals, but we fell short again and again. Our ethics could not live up to our aspirations. We fell short. Because we fell short, the road behind us is littered with the evidence of our past mistakes. And every day we live with the weightiness of our regrets. And yet we cling to hope that maybe our mistakes don't define us. That maybe reflecting on our mistakes and looking back can help us not to repeat them. Maybe those mistakes made us who we are today, fractured, but still holding on. The founding fathers never claimed to be perfect. And they never claimed that they were forming the perfect nation. Instead, they set out to form a more perfect union. A more perfect union. And that's the best that any of us can hope for, for America. It's the best that any of us can hope for, for ourselves as well. I get up every day hoping against hope that today I may have a more perfect union with God than I had yesterday when I messed up. A more perfect union with my wife, with my family, a more perfect union with my neighborhood, and even a more perfect union with my enemies. Because although I am not perfect, God has loved me perfectly. By God's grace, I can inch a little closer to his perfection every day. And maybe, the same can be true of this great, imperfect nation that we call home. Maybe these disruptions we've experienced recently are just growing pains. Maybe remembering our past, as painful as it may be, remembering the past mistakes could prevent us from repeating them. Maybe these protests that we've seen on our TVs and in our city streets could give rise to a more perfect union. Maybe one day we'll realize that we really are all in this together and that the U.S. really is at its best when it's all of us together. The 4th of July weekend can evoke all kinds of feelings for us. This 4th of July, how should we feel as Americans? How should we feel as Christians in America? Should we be proud to be Americans or should we be ashamed? You can be both. Were the founding fathers of this nation heroic or were they heinous? People can be both. The Bible, after all, calls the very same people sinners and saints, the light of the world and the dust of the earth. Because although no one is perfect. God loves all of us perfectly. So I pray that this 4th of July weekend, we may all choose to be a blessing to our fellow Americans today, regardless of their skin color or their creed or uh, who they are or their political persuasions. May we love them the way God loves them and the way God first loved us. And may God by his grace, continue to bless this nation we call home on this, the weekend of her 244th birthday. God bless America, and God bless all of you. Would you pray with me?
Father, we know that we can be entitled at times. We can be spoiled. We can be prone to criticism and cynicism before we stop and remember to give thanks. And so this weekend, we stop and say thank you. We know that the freedoms and rights we enjoy as Americans, they come from you and not from any government. And so we thank you for creating us in your image with inherent worth and dignity, with the expectations of equality and human rights. We thank you and we ask for forgiveness for the times we've fallen short of your ideals of equality, of worth, and loving our neighbors as ourselves. Lord, we also know that this nation, or really every nation on earth, is just an echo of the society you have in mind, the kingdom that is yet to come in its fullness, and we look forward to that kingdom. We are truly citizens of that kingdom first and foremost. So we await your fulfillment, Father. In the meantime, we want to love as you have first loved us, and to forgive as you have forgiven us, and to liberate as you've liberated us. And so help us, Lord, to love across every aisle, to love without counting the cost, to love even if it makes us look foolish, even if it hurts, to love unconditionally. That, we believe, is the only way to make a more perfect union, to live a more perfect life. But we thank you, Father, for Jesus, the greatest gift, the one who set us free. We pray in his name. Amen. Hey, friends, thank you all for joining us today for this uh, special, abbreviated, simple version of the story, online worship. I hope you find time to be grateful. I hope you find time to worship God in your heart this weekend. And I hope that we continue to grow in the love of God together. Thank you for being here today. You can always visit thestory.church to learn more about our community, and you can visit thestory.church slash donate to support our ministries with your finances, and we thank you in advance for your generosity. Have a great week, everybody. God bless you. Thank you for being here. Bye-bye.